My name's Jenny and I'm going to bring the second Bible reading tonight. You can follow along by looking at the screen or you can find it in Matthew chapter 18. I'll be starting at verse 1, reading through to verse 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one life, one eye, than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Amen. Well, friends, good to see you all here this evening. Uh, my name is John. If we have not yet met, I look forward to meeting you. If you're visiting us, I'm the assistant minister at this church. And like uh, what Matt said in the announcement, I'll be away for the next three weeks. But I look forward to spending more time with you when I come back. But tonight as well at Coffee House, there will be lots of food, some nice drinks and some fun activities for us to get to know each other. So please hang around for that. Now, if you do keep your passage, your Bible open to... Matthew 18, I will work through these nine verses, so that will help you along, uh, help you follow me as we look at this great passage. Uh, but as we look at this passage, we always depend on God for his uh, help in helping us to understand it. So let's pray to our Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do reveal to us the way we must and Act, uh, must and be, uh, behave and act as we turn to you. So we pray, Lord, that this will be clear as we look at this passage, how we must be humble, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what does greatness look like? What does it look like to be great? What do you think? Now, whatever greatness is, I suspect all of us We'll want to be great in one way or another. We'll want to be great, be it in sports, in our studies, in work, in our achievements, in our successes in life. And as a world, as a society, we celebrate greatness, don't we? We celebrate human greatness. With the Olympics coming up this year, that is really all about celebrating human greatness, celebrating that. On Friday, uh, my daughter, they had an athletics day. That was also about celebrating greatness. If you got first, you got a blue ribbon. You get second, you get a red ribbon. If you get third, you get a green one. Fourth, a white one. And everyone else, they get a funny colour ribbon which says, well done. Which really means, not good enough, try harder next year, right? (laughs) But we celebrate human greatness, don't we? 
And one of the greats, one of the greats who wasn't afraid, wasn't ashamed to broadcast his own greatness was this guy. Do you remember this guy? Oh, he's still alive. Muhammad Ali. Now, some of his speeches are so profound, so wonderful just to, to read, so inspirational just to convince you not to mess with him. So as a younger man, these were the things he said. I've done something special. I wrestled with an alligator. I tussled with a whale. I've done handcuffed lightning and thrown thunder in jail. You know I'm bad. Just last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalised a brick. I'm so mean I made medicine sick. (laughs) Now this guy's on about greatness, wasn't he? He said this also. I'm as confident as I've ever been and I'm better than I say I am. And he goes on. I'm a poet. I'm a prophet. I'm the resurrection. I'm the saviour of the boxing world. That is greatness, isn't it? And there's more. I'm floating like the butterfly and sting like a bee. We know that, right? We've heard that before. There's more. I'm young. I'm handsome. I'm fast. I'm pretty and I can't possibly be beaten. Greatness. More. I'm the king of the world. That's where that guy in Titanic got it from. I'm the king of the world. And of course, the most famous line, I'm the greatest. Now, as someone who oozes that confidence, that pride, who has the audacity to say all those things, who has this charisma which is unparalleled, and he was good. He was a great boxer. And his greatness attracts the attention of the world. Human greatness in all its forms attracts the attention of the world. But of course, the great ones will have their day. There is this story about Muhammad during the peak of his career, during a flight interstate to defend his title. The captain of the plane, he announced through the uh, PA, Approaching severe turbulence, would passengers and crew fasten seatbelts immediately? And so the crews hurried, hurried up and down the aisle trying to check that everyone got their seatbelts on and one flight attendant noticed that Muhammad Ali sitting at the front of the plane left his seatbelt done, undone, obviously undone. And so this flight attendant goes to Muhammad and says, Excuse me, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt? The captain has advised that this could be quite rough. Ali looked at her calmly and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. But as quick as a flash, he replied, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> the great brought low. But our world celebrates greatness, doesn't it? People achieve, we celebrate that, we reward that. But this evening... I want us all to consider what attracts the attention, not of the world, but of God. Is it human greatness that attracts the attention of God? What is it that God pays attention to? And so we'll look at this passage. So let's have a look. In our passage, the disciples, they too were on about greatness. They wanted to be great. They wanted positions of honour and of privilege and of prestige. They wanted to be seen as the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so look at verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see, they were bickering between each other, wanting to be the greatest, 
wanting that position of status. Now, what's shocking about this question, this question of the disciple at this time, was that this comes straight after Jesus discloses that he will be betrayed. He will suffer. He will, in fact, die. Jesus has just revealed that. I'm going to die. But the disciples here, what were they on about? They were thinking about their status, their position, their ranking, their ambition. That was the height of insensitivity at that time. Jesus just announced, I am going to be betrayed and I will die. But you are here worried about your selfish ambition. Imagine hearing that. It would be a bit like you've just heard your friend's got cancer. It is sad they're about to die. But then you're thinking, I wonder if this friend of mine will include me in his will. You see, that was what the disciples were doing. Jesus announced he will die. They worry about themselves. And so at this point you expect Jesus to be angry, to be frustrated, to be mad at the disciples. What is wrong with you? How insensitive. But what did Jesus do? Instead, what did Jesus say? Well, in a sense he says, you disciples, you're getting ahead of yourselves. Let's not think about greatness in the kingdom just yet. Let's make sure you get in first. Let's make sure you get into the kingdom in the first place. And so what does he do? Look at verse 2. He caught a little child and had him stand among them. And in verse 3 he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what did Jesus mean by that? Now, when we've run the, uh, the Christianity Explored course, often people would think it's to be innocent like a child. That is what Jesus is saying. Become innocent like a child, that is how you enter the kingdom. And when they do say that, I say to them, I ask them, well, which child have you seen that's innocent? I mean, in reality, just watch any child long enough and it will become blatantly obvious that children are not innocent. And that's why good parenting, good parenting always involves discipline because the natural inclination of children is to be selfish. You see, you don't need to teach a child to lie, but they will. You don't need to teach a child to throw a tantrum in the middle of the shopping centre, but they will. You don't need to teach that. You don't need to teach a child to be selfish, but they will be. I mean, just try this as an experiment. Leave only one slice of chocolate cake at morning tea and then unleash the 30 Sunday school kids and watch. It will be war. Watch a child long enough and you see that children are not innocent. And so what was Jesus on about here? Was he on about be innocent, turn, change, be innocent and you will enter the kingdom of heaven. That somehow by being innocent, by being good enough, by being moral enough, that, that you will get into heaven. That's what you need to do. Was that what Jesus was on about? Because if that were the case, then who could do it? Who is innocent enough? Who is good enough? Who is moral enough? You see, I don't think Jesus is teaching that here. Change, be moral become innocent and you'll get into heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying. Instead, Jesus is asking for a different type of change. 
And so what is that change that is needed here? Not change your innocence, like you can do that anyway, but change who you depend on. You see, that is what is distinctive about children. Not that they're innocent, but that they are dependent, dependent upon adults, dependent upon their parents for everything. I mean, we've ordered newborns in our church lately. Have you ever seen any one of those babies? We've got some here. Have you seen Christopher or Lloyd or Grace or any of these babies after coming home from hospital? They go and find their own milk supply. Seen that happening? Ever seen children, babies, wash themselves after they've dirtied their nappy? Seen that happening? Ever seen babies sing a lullaby to themselves to sleep when they're tired? Of course that doesn't happen. They're dependent on their parents for everything. To feed them, to clothe them, to wash them, to sing them and rock them to sleep. Children are dependent, not innocent. That is what is distinctive about children. Even my children now, though they've been weaned off milk, toilet trained, and they can put themselves to sleep now, they're still dependent. Children are dependent. They don't pay for their groceries. They don't cook. One of the parents do, one of us. They don't go to school by themselves. We walk them to school, drive them to school. They don't pay for their school fees. They don't work. They can't do anything. They can't do any of those things. And do you know how much it costs to raise a child? I mean, any of these children earn any money at all, but you know how much it costs in Australia to raise a child? A study was in fact done on how much it costs to raise two children in Australia to the age of 21. For a middle income family, it costs $812,000 to raise a child to 21 too. For a high income family, it costs more. Because high income, you spend more. It costs $1.09 million to raise two children to 21. Why do higher income families spend more? Because they've got things like Taylor Swift concerts and Justin Bieber stuff and that is why. But how can any child earn that amount of money? They can't. And that's the point. They are dependent. Give a kid an ice cream and they will take it. Give an adult an ice cream and they'll say, no, I'll buy my own. Or they'll say, what's the catch? You see, adults, we don't, we don't like to be uh, dependent. We're too proud for that. We don't want to depend on anyone. But that is what Jesus is teaching us here. Unless you change, unless you change and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you come to God with empty hands, I've got nothing. You come to God with complete and utter dependence upon God, not on your merits, not on your good works, not on, the, on your own morality. Unless you come dependent like a child, leaning totally on God's goodness and God's promises, you have no place in the kingdom of God. And so the way into the kingdom, what we're seeing here, what Jesus is teaching us here, the way into the kingdom is by humble dependence. Not your efforts, not your good works, but by humble dependence upon God. God says, I will save you. Do you trust that? Humble dependence says, I will. I will trust in your promises. But now Jesus also teaches in this passage 
The way into the kingdom is humble dependence, but the way of the kingdom is also humble dependence. It's not just the way in, but that is the life of those who belong to the kingdom of God. This would have rocked, you see, the ancient world when they heard this, when the disciples heard this, when this was taught. It would have shaken their world. They were talking about greatness, remember. We want to be seen as great. They're talking about what can I do? What will I be? They're thinking about how can I be better than everyone else? And Jesus is in a sense saying, you've got it all wrong. Jesus Jesus subverts the understanding of greatness and he says, you want greatness? Well, greatness is not seen in your abilities. Greatness is not seen in your achievements. Greatness is not seen in your status. Greatness is seen in your humble dependence upon God, your humility before God. And so that's what we see, verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is the way into the kingdom and this is the way of the kingdom, humble dependence upon God. You see, this humility is directed not only to God but also to others. Jesus is saying you need to be humble not just to God, you must, but you must be humble towards others as well, your fellows. And so in a society back then where children were despised, children were seen as less important than adults, Jesus says you can't, you can't say that, you can't think that, you can't despise them because they're younger and smaller, you can't despise them because they're dependent. You show humility even towards children even towards the weak, even towards those who do not have, towards those who are vulnerable, and you welcome them. That is the way of the kingdom. And so we see this in verse 5. Whoever welcomes a little child like this, in my name welcomes me. And so what we have to understand here and see here is that what Jesus was teaching here was shocking to the disciples. It was shocking. It was outrageous in the ancient world. This was not the way of life. Jesus was, in fact, turning their world upside down. Their ethics was being turned upside down. Jesus is saying, the way up is not up. The way up is down. The way to glory is service. The way to greatness is humility. And that's because that would have shocked the world and that's because in the ancient world to, to, to be humble, to show such humility was to be seen as worthless. It was to be seen as shameful, debased, a failure. Humility was the stuff of slaves. Those of honour did not want to be humble. That was the stuff of slaves. No one wanted to be humble in the ancient world. It wasn't a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. Rather, their ethic was about honour. They were all about honour. And I get honour when I perform, when I achieve, when I succeed. That was what they were on about. And so when I defeat my enemies as the commander, I get honour, I get praise because of my achievements. I don't want to be humble because that would mean that I have nothing to show for. No merits to gain praise and that would be shameful. But you see what Jesus says here, humility is the way into the kingdom and humility is the way of the kingdom. But you see, 
humbleness and, and humility. We need to see here this is new to the ancient world with the coming of Jesus. And so humility is in fact a Christian thing. It only became a virtue with the rise of Christianity. And where did the idea of humility being a good thing come from? Well, it came from Jesus Christ himself. The disciples at this stage, they were not yet aware of it, but in our first reading in Philippians 2, that, that short hymn which, which explains what God did in Jesus shows the humility that Jesus went through. That is when it became a virtue because God himself did that in his son. Remember that, that passage, Philippians 2? Jesus, who did not consider equality with God, he left heaven, became a man. Worse than that, he became a servant of men. But worse than that, he, he died at the hands of people he created. That is humility. And how did he die? The worst, the most humiliating, the most brutal way on the cross. That is when it became a virtue because the Lord Jesus humbled himself, God becoming man for this world. And it was in the humility of Jesus that humility became a virtue throughout the Roman world and throughout, of course, the Western world. And so this point was a great shock to the disciples. Humility was what it took for salvation to be achieved in the first place. And humility is what it takes for salvation to be received. It's what it took for salvation to be achieved. It's what it takes for salvation to be received. It's the way into the kingdom and it's the way of the kingdom. Now Jesus next in this passage, he shifts the focus a bit now. He shifts the focus away from what, uh, what, what gets you into the kingdom to now what keeps you out of the kingdom. Jesus now speaks of the depravity of sin, of human sin, of human rebellion against God, of human sin against each other. Jesus speaks now of the depravity of sin. And he goes on to say, you don't enter the kingdom of God by being moral, by being good, but you're kept out of the kingdom by being a sinner. Do you notice that distinction? You don't get in by being good, but you're kept out by being a sinner. And that's why here in this next bit, Jesus takes sin, rebellion against God. He takes sin very seriously. Sin is a wretched thing. It's a terrible thing to cause anyone else to sin. And so Jesus here, in this little sort of parable, he illustrates it as strongly as possible. If any one of you causes anyone who belongs to me to sin, you are better off dead. I mean, that is harsh words. Look, look at verse 6. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, in the original text, the millstone referred to here is, is one used by donkeys to grind, uh, grind grain. And so these millstones were huge. They could weigh several hundred kilos. And so Jesus is giving this illustration, which is so clear, not just tie a rope, around this sinner and let him sink to, to the bottom of the sea. Put this massive millstone around him so that he stays at the bottom of the sea. The severity of the consequences matches the severity of the sin. 
You see, Jesus is showing here the seriousness, the wretchedness, the depravity of sin, of causing anyone else to sin. Now, now this verse has been understood in various ways. It has been used in various ways. There have been several cases in the US court system where this verse has been appealed to in the sentencing. There's a story in 1998. An Ohio judge, Melba Marsh, uh, he quoted this verse before announcing that this child rapist be sentenced to 51 years in prison. He referred to this verse. In 2013, a Louisiana prosecutor referred to this passage to express the punishment needed for this man who killed his one-year-old son and that guy was sentenced to life. But what's that what Jesus was on about? This verse is to help us decide what to do in court? Well, not exactly. Jesus was not teaching us these things to be adopted in the court of law. But what those judges, what those prosecutors were trying to convey was something of the terror of sin, something of the wretchedness of sin that such a big punishment was necessary. But now Jesus goes on with his judgment and he's serious. Verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. People sin. But woe to the man through whom they come. You see, Jesus is making very clear, blatantly clear here, You need to be ruthless with sin. The consequences are deadly serious. It is what keeps you out of the kingdom of God. And now just as Jesus was ruthless when it comes to causing others to sin, Jesus was also just as ruthless when when anything causes you to sin. Be brutal with even yourself. Whatever causes you to sin, get rid of it. It is better to be thrown into to to lose a limb than to be thrown into the fires of hell. So the last two verses, verse 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, Jesus says. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. You see how, how, how serious Jesus was? This is serious stuff. Sin is deadly serious. Jesus doesn't shy back from the consequences of sin. Sin is what keeps you out of the kingdom of God. Sin is what throws you into the fires of hell. During the 2nd century BC, there was a biblical scholar, philosopher, by the name of Origen. Out of piety, he, he thought he was doing the right thing. He, he took this passage literally and reportedly he castrated himself because of his faith. He wanted to get rid of anything that would cause him to sin. Now, now he probably went a bit too far. The passage is not telling us to mutilate ourselves, but he's saying, bring it under control. Keep your body under control. Do anything and everything to avoid the fires of hell. Because remember, sin is what keeps you out of the kingdom. It is deadly serious. Now, someone once said this, sin does not send you to jail. This is to help us see the the seriousness of sin. Sin doesn't send you to jail, but sin sends you to hell, you see. Sin sends you to hell. 
Now, I wonder whether we feel the weight of that. Jesus was serious. I wonder whether we feel the seriousness of that. And I wonder whether today our rebellion against God, the way we hurt each other in this world, whether sin has become domesticated, trivialised, underestimated, that even amongst Christians we do not see the danger of sin anymore. We do not see the consequences of sin anymore. Let's take an example. Let's take pornography, for example. A study was done on pornography. Often people have varying views, so they want to see what, what people thought about pornography. Was it right? Was it wrong? Is it moral? immoral? And the results were quite shocking. Here are some of the results. The first one. One out of two adults or one out of three teens and young adults see viewing porn is wrong. I mean, that's, that shows that this sin has become domesticated, trivialised. Not everyone sees that wrong. It should be 100%. It should be 100%. Or next, 54% of porn users say it doesn't really bother them to use it. It should bother everyone if it's used at all. Well, this next stat, it's hard to see, but I'll just point out one of it. Teens and young adults rank not cycling as more immoral than viewing porn. Isn't that sad? That it is worse to not recycle than to view porn. I mean, the depravity of porn should be far worse. That is wrong. That was a study just done on this one sin. But let's consider other things that we might... You know, have domesticated, trivialise. I wonder if a, a similar study was done on some other sins. Let's say lying. Let's say lying. I wonder if the results will come back the same. Only one out of two adults think it's wrong. Or let's do a study on gossip and I wonder whether the study would come back the same. Only 54% of gossipers says it doesn't really bother them. I wonder if another study was done on greed. And I wonder whether the results will come back the same, that recycling is seen as worse, more immoral than greed. But Jesus was deadly serious here. Sin keeps you out of the kingdom. Sin keeps you away from God. But if you are in, then it means it has no place in the kingdom. You cannot go on sinning in the kingdom. You cannot go on rejecting God, rebelling against God, hurting others if you belong to God already. And so when you read this passage and you hear this, I suspect some of us might be counting our sins. I suspect, suspect some of us might be feeling weighed down and paralysed and burdened by all our flaws and faults and mistakes. Well, in a sense, it's meant to, that second bit is meant to give us this sense of hopelessness. What a terrible sin I am that I've done that. How can I be saved? How can I ever enter the kingdom of God? But you see, that's the whole point of this passage and that is the beauty of this passage. Sin keeps you out. That's okay, we know that. But what gets you in? It is humility before God that brings you into the kingdom of God. And that is where true greatness lies. True greatness lies not in our achievements and successes, but in our humility before God. That is reality. Pascal, a French philosopher, he said, 
this: the greatness of man is great, in that he knows himself to be a wretched. A tree does not know itself to be a wretched. The greatness of humanity is that we can come to recognize and see that before God we are fallen human beings in need of love and mercy. And a pastor and author, he said this, C.J. Mahaney, he said, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so when we come to God, we need to see how wonderful, how glorious he is and at the same time see how sinful, how helpless we are. And so tonight, what I want us to do is really to do a reality check of our own lives. Let us all, in your own minds, put together your list of achievements, what makes you great, what, think, what you think makes you great. Put that together. Okay, wrap it in a parcel and see if God will accept that as the way into his kingdom. And so I'm thinking about my own life, my own achievements. I've done two degrees. I'm doing a master's. Wow, massive achievement, right? Going on this study tour. I've got a wife. I've got three kids. I've got several awards. I've got an I've got a, a award from the Australian Defence Force, a little medal. I'll put all these achievements together. I've helped ladies cross the road. I've given my seat up for old ladies on trains. I've done that. I've been kind to my neighbour. I've mowed my neighbour's lawn. I sometimes roll the bin back in too. I'm putting all my achievements, all my successes together, putting in a package, putting in a parcel. Even if I was the greatest boxer, I'll put that in too. Even if I was able to be the great preacher, I'll put that in too and I'll present to God. God, look at my successes. Look at my achievements. What will God say? They're just filthy rags. Filthy rags. You think that's going to let it get you into my kingdom? You think all that will get you into my kingdom? You have your own package of achievements, of greatness. You think God will be giving you access to his kingdom on the basis of that? Well, well, no. Tonight I want us to have and to make a reality check on our own lives, to be honest with ourselves and we'll come to see whatever I've done, whatever I've achieved, I cannot save myself. I cannot do it. I can never be good enough. I won't be. I can't become innocent. But you know what we can all do? What we all can do is that we can turn, we can change and be like a child before God. Become like a child before God who will depend on God to save me, who will trust in God's promises to love me, who will depend and rely on God to welcome me into his kingdom. That's what all of us can do. We can change and become like a child who depends on God Almighty. You see, when it comes to my salvation, I don't want to trust in myself. The reality is that I do not have to trust in myself. I do not need to trust in myself. All I need to do is to change and to utterly and completely trust in God. You see, humility was what it took for salvation to be achieved in the first place. And humility is what it takes for salvation to be received. And if you are humble, this is what attracts the attention of God. 
if you come to him in humility. And my prayer tonight is that you will. And so let me pray to that end. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you do make clear to us the worth of our human achievements, the worth of our successes, and you show us that they're just filthy rags. And so help us to make this reality check, to see that all that we've done are worthless, will not merit us access to your kingdom, but help us all to change, to become like a child, to depend completely and utterly upon your goodness to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.